Welcome to the Chris Wallace Chronicles. All right, you don't know who that is. Okay. He lives in Australia now, but he lived in Hollywood before Australia and New York before Hollywood. You know, the actor, the songwriter. He was at ringside for the first Ali Frazier fight, Liza Minnelli's date one night. Used to smoke weed with Morgan Freeman. Likes to tell stories like this one. Serendipity, luck, timing, call it whatever you want. But when I lit out in a new direction in St. Louis, I had no idea where I was headed. America was in revolution, socially and politically. Show business reflected it. New faces were emerging, new attitudes were emerging. And St. Louis is in the middle of it. Well, maybe not all of St. Louis, but there was a two-block strip on Olive Street that was ground zero. Gaslight Square. I had to figure out how to get there. I began writing in St. Louis. I wrote every day, either a song or a story or a sketch or an essay or a poem or whatever. I never knew if what I was writing was any good because nobody else ever saw it. But after a while, I'd accumulated a stack of all kinds of original material. The time came when I had to find out what somebody else thought. Otherwise, what's the point? At Gaslight Square, there were a few places where you could go on a hootenanny night and wait your turn to do your stuff. One was the Laughing Buddha. That's where I really started my show business career. I sang a song there that I called Khrushchev. It was meant to be satirical and funny. This is probably something I shouldn't say out loud, but I wasn't at all nervous. I sat on a stool with my baritone uke and sang that song like I'd done it all my life. The song got laughs. This audience of strangers actually laughed at my song. I was stoked. This was fun. I went back to the Laughing Buddha a few more times and tried out different songs. It probably had less to do with my brilliance than it did that people came in with very low expectations, but nobody threw rotten eggs or tomatoes. Nobody booed. And a lot of times, they laughed. I began to develop a little confidence. There was an outdoor restaurant across the street called Smoky Joe's. I have no idea how this happened, but they allowed me to go among the tables with my uke and sing songs. They may have paid me five bucks a night, but I'm not even sure about that. Sometimes I got tips. I had one experience there that I've never forgotten. A couple were waiting for their dinner when I asked them if they'd like to hear a song. The woman smiled up at me and said yes. He wasn't quite as enthusiastic. So I started singing my song, Wanderlust. She was holding a cigarette between her fingers, and as I crooned away, I noticed that the ash is getting longer and longer. She was mesmerized, just staring up at me while I sang the song. I was holding an audience of one, absolutely spellbound. The ash was getting closer to her fingers, but I didn't want to break the spell, so I kept on singing. Finally, just as I was finishing the song, the ash reached her fingers and burned her. That broke the spell. I think the guy gave me a buck just to get rid of me. The venue at Gaslight Square was the Crystal Palace. You can Google all this stuff. The Crystal Palace was part of the scene, man. The happening place. It was on the circuit that included the Hungry Eye in San Francisco, Mr. Kelly's in Chicago, and the Bitter End in Greenwich Village. The Smothers Brothers, Phyllis Diller, Woody Allen, Mort Saul, Lenny Bruce, all played the Crystal Palace. 
Jay Landisman and his brother Fred owned it. They also produced original comedy and musical reviews there, and original musicals. The Nervous Set was a musical based on a book that Jay had written about the Beat Generation. He and Ted Flicker turned it into a musical that premiered at the Crystal Palace and then went to Broadway. Jay's wife Fran was a brilliant lyricist. She collaborated with Tommy Wolfe on the songs. Two of the songs became classics, The Ballad of the Sad Young Men and Spring Can Really Hang You Up the Most. There's a recording of Ella Fitzgerald singing Spring Can Really Hang You Up the Most on YouTube that's brilliant. I finally got up enough nerve to go to the Crystal Palace and sing some of my songs for Jay Landisman. I left a few lead sheets with him. I was hoping that even if he didn't want to use me, he might find a place for a song or two. He didn't even seem a little bit impressed. Quel dommage. My savings and the Jif peanut butter money were running out. Every time I looked in the mirror, I saw poverty. I remember one day when I had to decide whether or not to spend my last $5 on a haircut, which I badly needed, or some peanut butter, bread, and coffee because a friend was passing through town and I wanted to have something to offer him. I opted for the haircut. On my way to the Park Plaza barbershop, I spotted a $5 bill on the sidewalk. Problem temporarily solved. Thank you, Athena. But that was at best a temporary fix. I was hurting financially. Bad. Real bad. I finally decided that I didn't have any choice but to give up show business, go back to Ohio and get a real job. But I didn't want to leave my songs with Jay Landisman, so I went back to the Crystal Palace to pick him up. I didn't have an appointment, I just barged in one afternoon. The new pianist and musical director at the Crystal Palace was a guy named Jimmy. I told him I wanted to see Jay, and he sent me upstairs to Jay's office. I walked in with one purpose. I wanted my songs back. I didn't get a chance to say anything. Jay froze me with his glance. Then he said, Can you sing? With all the indignation I could muster, I said, I sang for you a few months ago, and that's all I got out. He said, Jesus Christ, you even look like Salinger. Come on. He led me down to the theater. Hey, Jimmy, see if this guy... What's your name again? Chris. See if Chris can sing Catcher in the Rye. It was that simple. I was cast in a new comedy review called Winners and Losers. I sang two songs, Catcher in the Rye and a Sinatra-type swing number titled See How Young I Am. But Catcher in the Rye was a showstopper. It was a sweet, plaintive song that Holden Caulfield himself might have sung. Jimmy and I worked out an arrangement that allowed me to include my baritone uke, So every night, right before intermission, I'd come out, sit on a stool, sing that song, and put the audience in my pocket. It ended with a high, soft falsetto note that I followed with a barely audible strum on the uke. It was magic. You could hear a pin drop every night. The stars of Winners and Losers were Jack Murdoch and Harry Honig. They performed as a comedy team. Harry was an advertising exec in real life. Jack had been in show business since he did traveling shows with his dad as a kid and then with his sisters. Google him if you want to see what he looked like. After World War II, he joined the Madge Kinsey Players. The Madge Kinsey Players was the third generation of a traveling tent show that began in the early 1900s. 
It's where he met and married Betty, one of Madge Kinsey's two daughters, who were also in the show. This was down-and-dirty, grassroots show business. Putting on a show was what they did, like the real-life version of Mickey and Judy in the barn. Make them laugh, make them cry, make them come back for more. They did comedy sketches, dance, sang, whatever it took. Pull into town, put up the tent, do the show for a few nights, pack up, and move on to the next town. When I met Betty, we discovered that they had played Delaware, Ohio. Not only that, but she remembered my dad's restaurant. That's where they ate. Jack knew Dave Ayers, the station manager at WOSU-TV, where I'd been an announcer. Jack, Dave, and Jonathan Winters had all worked at WBNS-TV, the station where I'd been a summer replacement. Serendipity, I reckon. Jack and Betty had two young kids, a boy and a girl, and a dog named Hokum, which can be loosely translated as the tent show version of Shtick. And now is now a part of the Crystal Palace family, too. I went to see all the performers who came through town. The most interesting one to me was Lenny Bruce. You can't begin to understand how outrageous he was unless you saw him. I went to a show on a Friday night. It was a full house. He came out and immediately pushed the envelope. Within 15 minutes, half the audience got up and walked out. He pushed it farther. At one point, he stood on a chair and said, I feel like taking out my dick and pissing on all you people sitting in the front row. Half of those people got up and walked out. The remaining 25% of us sat there for the rest of the show and split a gut. There were also a bunch of regulars at the Crystal Palace, one couple I remember particularly. Madeline was a very attractive 30-something woman whose husband was stupid rich. He was also a drunk. She flirted with me all the time. It was one of those situations where you can take the boy out of Delaware, Ohio, but you know the rest. I couldn't have been greener if I was broccoli. One night, Madeline was sitting at the bar when I walked up and said hi. She said, I can't talk to you anymore. Why not? Because you're a mark for the queens and I was told to stay away. Mark for the queens? I didn't know what that meant. She said, the queens, the boys, the fags. I was outraged. You mean they, yeah, that's what I mean. I had no idea about homosexuality and I mean none. I was barely aware of my own heterosexuality. Winners and losers ran long enough for me to put some money away and stick it out a while longer. I kept writing every day. On my free nights, I'd often pop into the TikTok club down the street for a beer and a look at the strippers. There was a cute little redhead named Debbie Fury that I fantasized about. That's as much as I could do. I was still broccoli, despite my adventure with the dancer in New Orleans and the hooker at the Ambassador Kingsway. After I saw Debbie a few times, I decided I'd write a song for her, even though she hadn't asked me to. After it was written, I popped into the club one evening and offered to write a song for her, which I'd already written. She said, why not? When I told her I'd finished it, she gave me her address and told me to bring it to her apartment next Saturday afternoon. I knocked on the door, and when she opened it, a blast of perfumed air wafted over me. She was wearing a gauzy dressing gown over a G-string. Nothing else. A lot of guys might have read something into this. A lot of other guys. I just asked her if she wanted to hear the song. She did. She liked it. 
She came up to me and threw her arms around my neck and kissed me. And I mean, kissed me. For a while. She just got the words out, I knew you'd be a good kisser, when we heard a key in the door and this guy walked in. She didn't miss a beat. Hi, honey, this is Chris. He wrote a song for my act. Give him $75. I went to the TikTok club the night she debuted it. She couldn't sing. She couldn't act. And she had an indifferent guy playing the Hammond organ for accompaniment. But to me, it might as well have been Judy Garland at Carnegie Hall. A song I'd written was being sung by someone. When I was at the Crystal Palace one night, Jay asked me if I wanted to be in a new show they were doing. It was going to be a musical melodrama, an old-school hiss-the-villain melodrama titled Let Her Rip. Jack Murdoch was going to be playing the villain, Reginald McSwine. Carol Lindsay would play Let Her Rip. There was an innocent bumpkin, a farmer and his daughter, a couple of other rural cliches, and the grossest cliché of all, Chief Tommyhawk, last of the no-luck Indians. I played Chief Tommyhawk, complete with headdress. Now I'd know better, but then, I'll be honest, it was fun. I had a million cliched laugh lines that always worked. Well, there was one night. It was Thanksgiving. We did a show. I had two Thanksgiving dinners that afternoon because I didn't want to disappoint anyone. So I was stuffed. Jack Murdoch was still tipsy from his Thanksgiving and missed his always perfect timing by a mile. The audience was as lethargic as we were. Backstage, it was agreed that they weren't laughing at anything. I had one sure-fire line that never missed. I bragged that I'd get them where everyone else had failed. I learned an important show business axiom. There's no such thing as sure-fire. Let a Rip ran for weeks. It was a huge hit. We were all invited to Jay and Franz for, I think, New Year's Eve. It was that time of year in any case. Not only was I broccoli when it came to women, I was also equally green when it came to everything else. At the party, they started passing joints around. I was shocked when Jack had two hits and passed one to me. I would never take any drugs. How dare he? Needless to say, it took the boy from Delaware, Ohio a while to catch up. Eventually, of course, he did, but not in St. Louis. On the way to work one night, in the dead of winter, below zero, as I approached the Laughing Buddha, it was on fire. No, that's too mild. It was a conflagration. Flames were shooting up into the cold night sky. Everybody was afraid the fire would spread to the rest of Gaslight Square. It would have gone up like a match. Luckily, it was contained, but the Laughing Buddha was gone from Gaslight Square forever. It was also the end of an era for me. I've used the song I wrote for Debbie Fury in countless shows in Hollywood and Melbourne. Seven different women have sung it, besides Debbie. So I'll end this episode with Holly James singing it at the Butterfly Club in Melbourne. I'm Chris Wallace. There was no time for acting class. Casting couches bore me. But still I had this thing inside. Saying it's show business for me. I searched and finally found my niche. You all know how that goes. My secret of success 
taking off my clothes. I like to strip. I like to strip. Just like Spanners like to grip. Or Jack in London like to rip. Like a sailor likes his ship. I like to strip. I love to That's why I must go.